How are y'all doing? Mm-hmm, good, good. If we're, if we're in Romans chapter 2. You can grab a Bible in front of you and I don't know what this is doing here. Uh, you, could, you could turn there. Um, one, of the, one of the things that Terrell mentioned last week, the difficulties about the way we preach uh, through the Bible, um, we preach a little section by section. Uh, last week was very, well, it was a very repentant time. And because we're still like right at the next section, it may be chapter two, but Paul is in the middle of a thought. So tonight is very much about repentance still. Um, and it's something that's necessary, I say that. It's something very necessary to our lives, to the life of a believer. Um, so tonight may feel a little, come off a little harsh, parts of it may, um, but know that repentance is meant to lead to, to life. And so we don't, we don't, if we don't get this, we don't get godly living with Christ, victorious living with him that we read about in other chapters to come in Romans. So we need to get this, our brokenness and our need for repentance. Um, yeah, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Father, we need you here right now. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, be with us. Speak to us um, as we read your word. As we learn from you, God, please, uh, well, we want to have an open heart. We're willing to hear from you. What I pray against any hard hearts, any hearts that are unwilling to be open with, with what their life is really like. Lord, I, I pray that you would soften our hearts right now. Uh, Lord, protect me from saying something foolish. Uh, guard, my, guard my words, Lord. Um, yeah, protect us and be with us. We need you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, tonight, um, we're going to be, actually no, let me, let, me, let me read this first. Let me read this. Romans chapter 2, first 11 verses. First 11 verses. Um, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing of wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Um, just to give you a heads up for what tonight's going to look like, and I kind of just did that, um, the order of things. So I'm going to give you a lot of context in just a second for these verses, uh, a whole lot of context. Really, first century uh, Roman church issues, really it's a lot issue with a lot of churches. I'm going to talk through that, and then we're going to talk about judging, and then that section about judging, then we're going to talk about presuming grace, and then we're going to talk about works. That's going to be really sticky. 
Um, so forgive me for that, because I'm going to stumble through that. Um, but then we're going to talk about works. So, um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to talk about this. Actually, actually let, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, give me, you know, one, two-word answer. What, what do you think the most dangerous sin is? Somebody, somebody give me a ha- holler an answer. One, two, pride, and mm, that's a good one. Hmm? Did someone say one? Lust, okay. Okay, all right. Any others? Any other thoughts when you think of Jesus' teaching what the most dangerous blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? That probably actually is the most dangerous, probably is. You won. That's not what I was going for, but you won. Um, so it's actually probably more going along the lines of what, what Jared said. Um, really, I think if we look at Jesus' teaching, the most dangerous sin is self-righteousness and is linked to, to pride. But that one's still the winner. Um, said one of. Um, yeah, self-righteousness is very dangerous, and that's something we're going to be talking about. When we look at judging, that's what we're looking at. We're not looking at, oh, simply don't judge uh, people, but we're looking at self-righteousness when we look at that. And it's an it's a ongoing issue in our lives, and it's an issue for this first church here. Um, yeah, so let me hit you with a lot of context. A lot of context. Uh, turn, to, turn to Acts. You turn to Acts chapter, chapter 11. Um, you're turning to 11. I'm going to talk about chapter 2 while you're turning to chapter 11 real quick. Um, so Pentecost happened. Some of you are familiar with the story of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit first comes on to the believers and they believe, and they're, they're speaking in tongues and all these people can understand them, then there's all these believers. All those people who can understand them are Jews. And it names all these different countries that they're from. They're part of what's called the dispersion. So centuries and centuries before, when Israel is conquered, actually time and again, Jews spread out further and further around the globe. And they still are believers, or Jewish believers, um, they hold on to their religion, and then at this time, they're coming back to the temple. So from, he, they list a, a huge portion of the, of the world, and they're all there. Um, they're at the temple, and then Peter's preaching, and they all believe. Those are Jews. Those are Jews um, from other countries who are believing. That's who believes first. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5 says that they were God-fearing Jews, or like very, very devout Jews. Um, now, let, let, me, let, me, let me go. I took you to chapter 11, because chapter 11... It's where the first Gentiles are filled with the Spirit. So up until this point in Acts, in the, in the early church, Peter, the other apostles, they all thought, you know, this is for the Jews. This is God redeeming us, and he is. It's for the Jews. That's what they thought. In chapter 10, uh, Jesus speaks to Peter in a vision and says, no, it's for the Gentiles as well. Um, and it bewilders him. It does. And then he does it. He preaches to some Gentiles, uh, and they believe they believe the Spirit fills them, and Peter's amazed. Peter's like, wow, it's for them too. This is a realization for them, for these first Christians, that Gentiles could be believers filled by the Spirit, could repent and be a part of the family of God. That is a, is a new thought for them, a new thought. But it's very biblical if we look back on the promise to, to Abraham. It's very biblical. Um, let me take you to, I took you to chapter 11 for a reason. Hold on, let me turn there too. Okay, so Peter, Peter comes back. Peter comes back from where he was traveling, where these Gentiles were saved. Look at verse, 
I want you to look at verse 3. It says, it calls these people um, the circumcision party. And don't think of those as just regular Jews. Those are converted Jews. Those are Jews who are, are Christians, who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Um, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's what it says. Um, it says they criticized him. Verse 2, they criticized him. They said, what are you doing? We heard you were eating with Gentiles. And these are Jewish Christians. These are the first converts ever, the first people to ever be filled with the Spirit. And they're going, what are you doing, Peter? What are you doing eating with, with, with the Gentiles? It was, it was shameful. And then he tells them the story. He tells them the story. Hey, I got this vision. Jesus spoke to me. And then uh, I preached to the Gentiles, and now they're, they were filled with the Spirit. Who am I to stop God? Uh, flip over. Or I'm flipping over. Go down to verse 17. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He uses it like a trump card. If God's going to do it, how can I? I can't stop him. Hey. Um, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And they're rejoicing. They're like, Wow. This is incredible. That's awesome. Gentiles can, can be saved by the Messiah as well. That's, that's, that's incredible. That's like a revelation to them right here. They did not realize it could happen. Let me, um, let me, let me, let me keep reading real quick. I'm going to keep following with me just to give you some context on this, this church at Antioch. Um, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose from Stephen traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But th there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were, excuse me, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or just Greeks, uh, Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, or that is, Paul, who wrote Romans. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So we have this incredible move of God in this, this city called Antioch, where Jews have ran to because um, uh, people who deny Jesus or the Christ were beginning to persecute Christians. And so they've come there, and now there's Gentiles believing in this city as well. It's a good thing. And so we see this church develop. Then we see Paul come to it. Paul comes to the city. Barnabas gets Paul and brings him here. Now, I want to take, you don't see this here. I'm going to take you somewhere else. Go to Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 2. I know we're hopping around. Galatians chapter 2. I'll give you a second. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 11. And Peter is called Cephas here. It means the same thing. This means, Cephas means Peter when you read it. Verse 11. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, by the way, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, like a Gentile, uh, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me talk about that for a second. So, so P- Paul gets there, um, and Peter's there, and they, he sees this happen. He sees Peter go from eating with the Gentiles and be like, yeah, this is awesome. You're part of the family of God. And then uh, a very zealous group of Christians who are very, very Jewish and very Christian, and what does he do? He switches, and he hangs out with them, and he, what he does is there's this separation. There's this separation that happens where Jewish Christians are not associating with Gentile Christians, or they're breaking this. It's not like they don't believe they're not saved. They're breaking this. There's a separation. They're saying, no, you know, we're going to be separate from you. That's good that you've received faith. It's good that you've received repentance. That's good, but we're separate. They've created this two-tier system where they are, you know, the head of the family, the older brother, and this is, you know, someone else. It's good that they can repent. That's good. And there is a separation. And Paul says, I mean, he opposes the apostle Peter to his face and condemns him and says, no way. This is not the truth of the gospel. It's the phrase he uses. The truth of the gospel, that God is creating one family that he calls sons and daughters, one family, not this two-tier system. And that, it's a lot of context, but that is what is going on in Romans. That is what's going on in many churches, actually, that have a mixture of Jewish and Gentile people in their church. Now, let me, let me add a little more context for you. Go back to Acts, Acts 18. I'm pretty sure it's Acts 18. Acts 18. All right, first two verses. First two verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Stop right there. So I wanted to show you that. In the Bible, that happened. It's very historical. In 49 AD, Claudius kicks out um, a huge portion of Jews. It is not clear. It is not 100% clear, I would say, why. It is over, uh, Roman historians say it's over a man named uh, Crestus. And so there are, there's a lot of, you know, Bible scholars, who, who, historians who, who believe that it's about the Christ. That similar in Acts, we're seeing Jews believe that Jesus is the Christ, and then there's riots about it. Riots happen in Acts. And we believe that something similar happened in Rome, where, where Jews were upset and say, no, this is not the Christ. I would say, no, this is the way. And Claudius, rather than understand it, rather than take time to address it, just says, get out. 
get out. And that's, that's what happens. And so they're gone. So all these, and most likely not all the Jews were gone, but Jews who uh, were Christians, Jews who were causing trouble, um, people who were leading riots, he kicks them out. And that happens in 49 AD. In 54 AD, Claudius dies. Emperor Claudius dies, and Emperor Nero, one of the worst emperors ever, becomes the emperor. He's not awful at this point. He will be horrendous later. But, um, but all of the decrees that Claudius had made were rescinded by, by Nero, similar to our president. We get a new president, he can just rescind every single executive order uh, pres- the previous president made. It's very similar. And that happens. So now we have in 54, 54, so we see you know, Aquila and Priscilla here, and they've had to leave. And in 54, now we have Jews coming back to Rome, back to the capital city. Jewish Christians coming back. And so for several years, there have been uh, Gentile Christians living in this community. They're growing. We don't know how big they are. They're in house churches. And now Jews have come back. They don't do house churches. They, the Jewish Christians, they, they stay around the synagogues. And so there is this tension that is renewed that is built where there's been this growing Christian community run by Gentiles and now there's, now there's, a, now there's a new group, new group of leaders, people who know the Bible better, uh, people who do things very differently than they do and there's a tension, there's an obvious tension between them. Um, there are, Romans is very difficult, is very difficult. It is, you know, one of his, one of Paul's greatest epistles but it is without a doubt his most difficult to understand. And even Peter says that. Peter says in, in his second epistle, Paul's writes stuff that's really tough to understand. It's difficult. Um, and, and Romans is difficult. And I mean, I'm not even talking about predestination Calvinism. I'm talking about just the question, why do you write it? Why do you write it? Um, I fall into a camp that is very historical, uh, that believes that he is writing to a specific group of people over specific issues, and that the issues that I just told you, there is tension between Jewish and Gentile believers the Church of Rome. Um, and there, the other camp is basically that this is a laid out systematic theology, Christian theology, Paul's theology, and I, it's there. It's quite clear that the Christian theology is laid out piece by piece in Romans. But we can't just look at it as that. We have to look and see that there is purpose behind this beyond that. That there is something he is addressing physically that's happening at this church. And it is their tension. And you're going to see that again and again. You'll see him use that phrase, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek or the Gentile. And not saying first as in a place or a tier, but as in it came to them first. And then equally, it's for the Gentiles as well. You'll see it again and again. Every time you see that phrase when you're reading Romans or we're talking about it up here, know that he's referring probably to the tension that he's trying to quell that is, that is there. And he wrote this in, people say, like maybe 56, 58, so maybe just a couple years after Jews were allowed back into Rome. Just a couple years um, yeah. So let me, let me, let me, I gave you a lot of context. Let me show you why I gave that. So first of all, it's context for all of Romans, um, which is good, but there are specific verses, uh, here that I want to point that to. So last week, if you were here last week, we read, um, we read about how broken man is. We read about how, read about how broken man is. Let me, let me read this verse, these verses to you. Verse 29 of chapter 1. Let me read the first few verses. Uh, they were filled with all manner of righteousness, evil, contentious, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice uh, such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let me tell you something. Paul wrote that. He wrote that, and he, he has the mind of a Jew. He's a Jew among Jews, is what he says. He wrote that knowing, knowing that when that's read out loud, all the Jewish Christians went, yeah, those Gentiles. Those Gentiles. I can't believe haters of God. Everything he just wrote is the opposite of their idea of who they are. It is the opposite. And Jesus addresses the same thing. He addresses self-righteous constantly. And so he writes that, and there is an assumption that that is talking to the Gentiles at their church. And then we've divided this into chapters. He didn't. He's still on the same thought. Pick up at verse 1. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. And it is if he has the mind, he knows exactly what they're saying, that they're saying, yeah, I can't believe those Gentiles are like this. And then he turns and says, oh, you think that you're good? You think that you're, you're clean? You are judging these people, you are judging these people, and you're condemned because you judge them. You're condemned because you're guilty of everything that you condemn them of. That is the point here that he's trying to make. Not just that, oh, don't judge people. And not just that, you know, if you judge, you know, you're, you're a sinner. But he is addressing the Jews here. He's addressing them. Saying, no, you don't get to do that. You don't. And it's the same thing he says to Peter. He says, how dare you? How dare you lay a burden on them that you never have been able to carry and never will be able to? And Peter knows it's the truth. And all these, when he writes this, and you read, they read this, all the Jewish Christians in Rome knew it too. They knew it too, instantly. And they're condemned for judging the Gentiles. And, that, and that's why I gave you that context there. And it's going to be all throughout, all throughout Romans. Throughout Romans. So, anyways, that's a lot of context. So, let's get on to more practical stuff. There are practical implications for this. So, sorry, I'm done with the context. Um, not that you'll enjoy the... Uh, the practical implications. So um, let me let me let me let me say something. This is a uh, this is probably all Gentiles in here. I, I highly doubt there's uh, any Jewish people here. There, there might be, but we are um, very Jewish in a sense, especially when it comes to this. We are very Jewish when it comes to this. Um, the culture here, the culture here. This is spot on. This is spot on, and it happened last week. There were some of you, Terrell, read those verses, read that condemnation, read, read all that truth, and you went, yeah, there's some people in here who need to repent. That was your first thought. There, you're in here, you're in this room. That was your first thought. You saw people come down here for prayer, and you thought, yeah, it's about time she got some prayer. She needed that. I'm serious. I'm serious. I know it's, it's, it's funny when you think about it, but it's I'm serious. There are folks who, that was your first thought. Your first thought wasn't, you know, that this is you broken, your first thought was someone else is broken. These verses are about someone else. And Paul wrote this section on chapter two just for you as well. It applies to those Jewish Christians there and it is for you as well. And when I say that, it's for me. I love to judge. It is one of my favorite, it's like a hobby. I'm serious, I judge everything. I judge music, I judge, judge movies, I judge 
food. I judged Brandon earlier for playing, playing, uh, playing you know, fake, you know, gangster Christian rap. Like, I judge everything. Um, everything. It's like, I'm serious. It's like my favorite thing. It's a huge issue. I have taken on, I'm serious, I have taken on what you would call a spirit of a Pharisee. And, and Paul, I mean, excuse me, Jesus condemns this throughout the Gospels. That is the big thing he lays against the Pharisees. Not that they would follow the law, but that they are self-righteous. They are self-righteous. There's nothing wrong with trying to follow the law. They are self-righteous, and that's exactly an issue with me. It's exactly an issue with me, and I'm, I bet it's, it is for some of you too. And let me tell you why you think that. You think that because you compare yourself to someone else. The only reason you think you're innocent is because you compare yourself to someone who is not. You compare yourself to someone who does things differently than you. Someone who posts you know, their sin on Instagram and you don't. You hide it. You are, we, I say you, we are exceedingly good at hiding our sin. We're pros at hiding our sin. Absolute pros. Let me, let me, let me share something else about this, about the nature of, of this. Um, because there are some of you who are like, well, you know, I'm not doing some of these things. Um, and Jesus, Jesus, um, several times over, talks about the heart. The heart is what God cares about. God cares about your heart. Jesus looks into a crowd of people, many who've never committed adultery, and said, you thought lustfully about this person? You're an adulterer. And they've never committed adultery. They've never done it. And they thought they were innocent. It's the same here in this room. You haven't committed adultery. And yet, you've thought it. And you maybe haven't acted on it, but it's what your heart wants, and God cares about your heart. And that is a serious issue. You cannot, you cannot point the finger at someone else because they've done something that you want to do just because you haven't done it yet. You can't. You can't do that. Self-righteous. And it applies right here in this room. It's a, it's a big issue here. Big issue. Let me keep going. We're going to keep going. So this, that, was, that, was, that was judging. The second thing I want to talk about is uh, presuming grace. So read, uh, read verse 4 and 5. I'm going to read verse 4 and 5 again. Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is difficult. This is difficult. This is difficult for me to apply as well Um, because it applies only to probably a smaller group of you, probably a smaller group of you, but I have to address it. I do that. I address it because it it was me. I sat uh, back there, right where you're at. Now that has anything to do with you. I sat right there, two years, this church, Impenitent heart is what Paul calls it. A hard heart is what Paul calls it. I sat there, listened, worshipped. I believed in Jesus, and then I did whatever I pleased, whatever I wanted. It's called presuming grace. Presuming grace, and it is a terrible thing. Where I did whatever I wanted and believed I was fine. I believed I was good. I didn't address my sin. I did whatever. Uh, Last week, Terrell talked about, uh, you know, uh, you know, when he was in sin, he was trying to rationalize, maybe I could smoke weed and do this. Uh, you know, I didn't rationalize anything. I just did it. I just did it. Didn't care. Because I thought, uh, God loves me, which was true. 
it was true, but I was presuming. And Paul says that I was storing up wrath for myself. I don't want to stay too long on this because most of you, this probably doesn't apply, but there are some of you here who that applies to, who are here and you're doing whatever you want and you know it and you don't care. And I don't know how I got to that place. I had a hard heart and I don't even know what I was doing at church. I might as well still, it didn't change anything. It didn't change a single thing about me. So my advice to you would be to listen to the Spirit because after being here for a while, I started to feel this pull that I was supposed to change, that something was supposed to be different, and I, I pushed. I pushed back so hard. Don't do that. Don't do that. You need to give in to him when he speaks to you. When he convicts you, you need to give in to that. So presuming, presuming grace is a dangerous thing. It is a terrible thing to know the will of God and then not do it. A very terrible thing. And I did that. And I know there's a few of you in here. It's the same thing. I'm going I'm to get going. Last, last point we're going to talk about tonight, which is actually the most difficult point. Um, let, me just, let me just read it. Let me just read it. Um, uh, verse 6. Verse 6 through 11. Uh, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let me read verse 6 just one more time, just verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Let me tell you, I have prayed over this verse a bit. Um, this is a very difficult verse, very difficult. Um, I want to try and stu- I want to try not to stumble into, into any heresy here. Um, this is a very difficult verse. Uh, there is a tension, use that word again, between grace and works, a heavy tension that is all throughout Scripture. It's not just this verse. It's through Jesus' teachings, through John's, through James, the prophets, all throughout. It's a heavy tension, and I want to try and do it some justice a little bit. Um, Hold on. Um, yeah, let me talk about this. So we have, we have what's called a, we have a Protestant background, uh, us in this room, whether you know it or not. A few hundred years ago, a guy named Martin Luther rebelled against the Catholic Church, um, actually primarily because of, because of Romans, what he read in Romans about grace through faith, because that's not what he was experiencing at the Catholic Church. And so he pushed hard that we are saved by grace alone and not by, not by works and he's absolutely right in it. And, but there has been this, there's been this, this thing that hasn't been good for us uh, because now Protestant churches are filled. They're absolutely filled with people with no works, no works whatsoever, and who fight against the idea of having to work at all. When in reality, Martin Luther had, had more works than everyone in this room combined. He had a lot of works. 
but he was right still. We're saved by faith alone. So I, uh, anyway, so there's a tension here. And this isn't the tension that he created. Um, if you look at Jesus, if you look at his teachings, um, actually, yeah, just flip there. Flip to Matthew 25. Flip to Matthew 25. Look at Jesus' teachings. That's what we're going to do. So Matthew 25, um, yeah, we're going to read about the judgment. Um, in verse 31, look at verse 31. Just so you know, uh, prior to this, he ter- tells a parable. It's called the ter- parable of the talents. I'm not going to read it. Basically, he, 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 it's a parable where a master gives several servants money. And then he gives one five. And when he comes back from a trip, the, the servant has invested and gives him five more. He says, well done. And then there's a servant where he gives one talent to, who he's one, one bit of money to. And then the servant does nothing with it. And when the master comes back, he says, what? You evil, wicked, lazy servant. And he takes it from him, and then he sends him to hell at the end of it. Um, and then this is, a, this is his teaching that follows that parable. Let me read this. Um, this is about the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you, hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus just painted a picture of what the judgment looks like. It's a little similar in Revelation as well, where he separates everyone, goats to his left, sheep to his right. What distinguishes them? According to Jesus, it's what they've done. And according to verse 6 of chapter 2 we just read, it's according to what they've done. He separates and says, you're not mine, and these are mine. How, how, How are these his? And he says, you gave me food, 
You gave me water. You clothed me. You took care of me. And these didn't. That's the separating factor. That's incredible. It's incredible. No mention of faith. No mention of grace. No mention of the blood of Jesus. It's just like, this is what you did. This is what you didn't do. And these go with me and these don't go with me. And that's bad. And that's bad. So we see that from Jesus as well. This idea that our works are very important. Works are very important. Let me... i got to fix this. This is bothering me. Let me tell you something. Works are fully expected in the life of a believer. I don't know how to more simply put it. Jesus clearly expects you to have works. Paul, what we just read, clearly expects you to have works. He clearly expects you to have works. And I, I don't know how inseparable they are. It's just like, they're right there. If you have faith, you have works, is what James says. You have them. They are inseparable. Another way Jesus puts it um, is fruit. You've heard him talk about the fruit, the fruit of a believer. It's quite apparent. Jesus looking into this crowd, and it's quite apparent who is his, those who have done his will and those who haven't. And I think that's something that Paul is saying here as well. There are those who have done his will and those who haven't. And I think that true faith brings out true repentance, and it brings true works. It brings true works as well. And it's unavoidable. It has to be a part of your life. It has to be a part of your life. I don't think in any way, in any way are you saved by it. In any way, but it has to be a part of your life. It is pivotal in the life of a believer. And it is very sad. But there are many churches here who have no works, who have no life, who do nothing. And I don't know what to think of that when I look at these verses. It's like, you say you believe, but then you don't then you don't do what's been asked of you. One of the toughest questions Jesus ever asked, he says, why do you call me Lord and then you don't do what I say? It's a very difficult question. Very difficult question. Why do we do that? And the answer is simply because we're, no, we're not his. We're not his. Not if we're not walking in what he's asked us to walk in. And I think I see that throughout Jesus' teachings. He has clear expectations for those who are his disciples. And it's a separating factor. Not that you're saved by it, but it's a clear separating factor of who is who. Similar to talking about, you know, the sin in your life as well. It becomes a clear factor. Who is who? John says that if you walk in darkness while you say you have fellowship with him, you're a liar. That's what he says. He says that you're a liar. It's a similar factor. You say this, and then you do these things. And this is similar, where it's like you say this, and then you don't do these things that you're supposed to do. You don't do these things that you're supposed to do. So let me ask you a question. Not that I want you to answer it out loud right now, but where are your works? Where are your works? Where are your disciples? Where are you serving? Who are you giving to? That's an important question. Where are your works? If you say you have Christ... I want you to have Christ. Where are your works? That's a question we should be asking ourselves as we look at this. Not, are you saved? Did you do the works? Not asking that. You say you're a believer. Where are your works? And I just, I just don't want to push much harder. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm just a step away from people being like, what? No, not works. So, 
but it is clearly expected of us. It is. Let me read. Let me read. Uh, wait, it's in my notes. Yeah, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. I know I'm all over the place tonight, but I'd rather you hear from the word than from me. Ephesians chapter 2. We studied this last semester. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if I gave it to the folks in the back, so it may not be up here. Just these two verses. Um, no, actually three. Chapter 2, verse 8. I'm going to read 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And this... I wanted you to hear that after talking about works, but listen to this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This tells us a couple things. It reiterates that works are expected in the life of a believer, but it says something else that I think is important. That works, any works that I've done, have been prepared for me to walk in. Any works that I'm walking in now, in the past, or in the future, or that I'm judged for, will not be works that I've conjured up. It'll be works that he's given to me. In the same way that grace is a gift, the same way that faith is a gift, in a similar way works are a gift. You don't make these up. This has been given to you to walk in. So when you ask yourself, when I ask you, where are your works, and you go, Um, you, need to, you need to look because you're called somewhere. You're called somewhere. The Spirit of God has a place for you. You have things that you're supposed to be walking in, places you're supposed to be serving, people you're supposed to be preaching to. There's somewhere you're supposed to go, and you need to know that. You need to know that. Where is it? And you need to ask, I don't know where you're going. I don't know what the Spirit of God has planned for you, but it is clear by these verses, the Spirit of God has works planned for you to walk in, and you need to look for those. You need to look for those. And some of you, the answer is going to take you somewhere you weren't planning to go. You're on a totally different path. And you need to be willing to move for that. You need to be willing to go. Be willing to, to say yes. Don't ask for it and then go, oh no, that wasn't what I wanted to do. You need to go whenever you're here. You need to ask that. Let me read one more. One more verse and I'm, yeah, one more section and I'm done. We're going to the Old Testament. We're going to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. I want us to just reiterate the heart of God, the heart of God. And this is, this is difficult. I feel like this, this sums up what God is looking for. Isaiah chapter 1. So, after Psalms, Proverbs, shortly after, it's Isaiah. Right before Jeremiah, right? Yeah. Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. This is to Judah, uh, the last remaining group in Israel. Um, he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah here, but he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to Jewish people. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I will not, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is God speaking. I am weary of bearing this. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. That's right. God literally tells these people, you pray and I don't listen. Your hands are full, full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus separating people who have brought, who's brought justice and who hasn't. You're going to hear Terrell, and I know you've had a bit, talk about being image bearers. We're called to be image bearers of God. And it's the same issue. God is upset with his people because they are not bearing his image. Their hands are full of blood, and he's tired of listening to them. They come to church, and he's like, what are you doing here? Your hands are full of blood. You're covered in sin. Why are you not taking care of the poor? Why are you not taking care of the orphans and the widows? And then Jesus, he's separating people at the end. He's saying, this is who's done the, you know, the will of my Father. This is who's taking care. This is who's bared God's image. And I think that's the heart of the issue when we talk about works. Because God is still on this. He still wants us to bear his image. And now he's causing us to do that. He's given us grace. He's given us faith. And he's given us works. He's causing us to bear his image. When we have works, that's what it is. Bearing his image. You're called to do that. You're called to do that. Let me read the last section there. This last little section. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we see God condemn and go, what are you doing? Stop it. I don't even want to listen to you anymore. And then he says, if you'll repent, if you'll repent, I'll cover everything. And that hasn't changed. That has not changed today. And I know maybe you're like, man, this is heavy, or this is like, wow, this guy's pushing all this repentance. And let me tell you something. Repentance is key. And if you want to hear about grace, I don't, I don't want you to just hear about grace. I want you to experience it and just preach it up here to you. I want you to experience it. And if you're going to experience it, it's going to start with repentance. And these people didn't. And God still wants it. His heart hasn't changed. And he's doing it a different way. He's doing it a different way. His heart has not changed. He wants repentance and he wants justice and he wants mercy. That's what he desires of us.